People of God in Christ, we start this morning with uh, this question. What do you do with bad news? How do you handle it? Uh, Not to try to be pessimistic, but that's what life is really, is it not? The effort to handle bad news. And the bad news comes to us, uh, it would seem, from all directions. I confess that I'm not one who enjoys and, and is drawn to watching the news. I don't like uh, to watch or read the news for a number of reasons. First, because uh, uh, I no longer have any real conviction that what I'm watching is uh, in, indeed uh, the truth. Uh, in my opinion, the news media uh, has lost a significant degree of, of credibility, at least to the point that you should be careful with just accepting whatever they tell you. Uh, Living in uh, Terre Haute and being from Lafayette, uh, I travel somewhat regularly between here and there. And uh, on the way, if you take the section of of Interstate 74 between State Road 63 and State Road 25, you will pass a billboard. And that billboard says in bold letters something to the effect of verify the news media before you believe them. I think that's probably uh, a quite valuable message uh, that we uh, need to hear in our own day. So what do you do with bad news? Well, one possibility is, uh, is that you just don't believe it. Uh, or even if you don't believe it completely, you, uh, you, uh, you uh, take the approach uh, Uh, to at least not believe it entirely. Uh, Don't let it alarm you. Uh, Wait a bit. See what transpires in the the meantime. Is it true? Is it not true? Uh, Time will tell, and this is even a very biblical approach. Uh, In the Old Testament, when God was using prophets uh, to proclaim uh, His message and His truth to His people, there were plenty of charlatans, as we say, who uh, apparently said, well, I can, I can play that game. Uh, these prophets of God don't have any more credentials than I do. Uh, they just stand up and say they're preaching God's truth. I can do that too. Well, that's fine, in a sense, said God. Uh, in essence, uh, he, he said, you can, you can try to add your message to mine or replace my message with yours, but, but this will be the test. If what the prophet says comes true, if what the prophet says actually happens, well, then you will know that it's true. That's fair, isn't it? Uh, uh, but how does that work in our own day? Uh, it works at least in this way, that, uh, that the bad news that you hear can be taken as true if it comes to be true. If there are confirmations of the truth, whether by your own experience or by perhaps a, a repeated report of the same news um, or from a growing number of uh, news sources. So what do we do with bad news? Uh, I asked the question, now for the third time, because exactly one half, okay, I, I guess I don't know that it's exactly one half, but, but at least part of the message of God's word is bad news. It's the bad news of sin. 
And the other part is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But how do you know if any of it is true? The first thing you do is, is ask yourself, does, does the bad news taught by God's word describe in any way my life? And if it does, then does it not comply? Does it not make sense that the good news will also be true? Bible, as the Word of God, is, uh, or, or gains its credibility first by being the Word of God. The Word of God claims to be the Word of God, and if that strikes you as circular reasoning, then congratulations, you're capable of thinking logically. But, but if the bad news is true, and surely we understand that it is, If God's word has this uncanny ability to describe life, your own life, in all its brokenness and pain, then wouldn't it make sense for us to listen quite closely to what else it has to say? As we continue our study and proclamation of Psalm 18 this morning, Looking this time, as I said, at verses 4 through 6, the first point is recalling death and destruction. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Here we have the bad news of sin. And the very good question is, why dwell on it? The obvious answer, perhaps, is, well, because the psalmist does. But the practice here of the psalmist really is is contrary to how many people deal with bad news, especially when bad news passes into history. I'm glad that's over. Let's just write that day off the books. But instead, the psalmist recalls the past even the great trouble of the past. He recounts the events, at least generally speaking, uh, uh, the, the events of the trouble out of which God has saved him. And if we think back to last time, to the opening verses of Psalm 18, we, we can make the connection that, uh, that he is doing this because he loves the Lord. I love you, O Lord, My strength, declares the psalmist at the start of Psalm 18. But now we get to hear why he loves the Lord. Even more to gain instruction on why we should love the Lord. I think we have this this very weird ability to practice religion or call it spirituality, if, if you want to be trendy. Uh, we can practice spirituality in a way that makes little sense. And in order to see it, all you have to do is, is, is to compare it to any other relationship that we have in life. Uh, we've made this point before when it, when it comes to praising God. Uh, we want to praise God, or so we claim, and, and yet we have this ability to think that all that is required is that we say, I praise you, O God. But try that with your spouse. Your husband comes home and you say, 
My dear, I praise you. I praise you. I really do praise you. But what is the response likely to be? What in the world are you talking about? No, no, I I really do. I, I really praise you. I glorify you. I glorify you. And yet somehow there is the thought that all the worshiper of God needs to say is praise the Lord and somehow God is praised. Like I said, we've made this point before that worshiping God is recalling and remembering and even more declaring what God has done to save us. But here in Psalm 18, we have much the same thing, that it's, it's one thing to say, I love you to God. It's one thing to say of God that he is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my, God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. But it's quite another thing to say why you love the Lord and how it is that you know that he is all such things to you. That he is your salvation. So the psalmist is not satisfied with just saying, I love you to God. Even if he were to say it 15 times over. And he's, and he's not even satisfied just referring to God in nice ways. Instead, he begins to recall the, the death and destruction that threatened him in the past. It reminds me of, uh, of a certain Pharisee named Nicodemus. Uh, we first hear of him in John 3 when uh, he came to, to speak with Jesus, although he came at night under the cover of darkness. And, uh, and, and he didn't so much come to say, I love you, Lord, to Jesus, but he did come saying, in essence, uh, I recognize you. Uh, I know by the miracles you are doing that there is apparently something Uh, quite special about you, uh, and I'm here to honor you. Not enough, said Jesus. You must be born again. And so instead, it was the disciples who followed Jesus, who stayed with him. And yes, they came to love him. And they came not just to the point of saying, I love you, But they truly loved him. And so we have a passage parallel, really, to Psalm 18 in John 21, when Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? And three times Peter answered him, Yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. You know that I love you. So how do we come to love God? You can say you love God, and, and, and that's at least a, a starting point to say, I love you, O Lord. But, but when does it become truly personal? When does it go beyond mere spirituality? It's when we recall where we were, where we would yet be without Christ. The cords of death. Cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me, writes the psalmist. In our own day, I think it's acceptable to to hear it in this way. The 
the handcuffs, the handcuffs of death bound me. The drowning waters were rising about me. The manacles of hell itself entangled me so that I was face to face with the terror of death. And yet in our own day, we live in a culture that has made peace with death. Imagine a a killer who doesn't kill without first convincing his victim that he ought to die. Uh, Imagine a shooter who goes into a school or an office building, and instead of just shooting people, he first spends the time making his victims believe that it's no big deal that they die. We would say, that's sick. That's diabolical. And we would be exactly right, because diabolical means of the devil. And this is who Satan is, and this is what sin does to us. It makes us oblivious to the fact that we were created in the image of God. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, God created mankind good, and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him, love him with all their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. So maybe the first step in in, in someone coming to faith in Christ is, is for them to get mad at death, to refuse to accept it. If we can conceive of eternal life, well, then why shouldn't it be attainable? Why shouldn't it be ours to live forever? Why can't there be an answer to death? Why can't there be comfort even unto eternal life? No, no, that's impossible, says the evil one. Everyone must die. Death is just the next stage of life. But the warning of God's word is that Satan is the deceiver. He is the world's foremost killer. And he doesn't just kill. He kills even as he would convince us to be killed, to go willingly to death, to the grave, and to hell. All such teaching of God's word needs to be recalled by the Christian. And we shouldn't be afraid to speak to others, to give testimony uh, to what God has done for us in Christ, even with a description of where we were in sin when God took hold of us. In Psalm 18, the psalmist is recalling the trouble he was in because of his enemies. In other words, not because he had committed some specific wrong, but because others were attacking him. But, but that's where we all are in sin. Here's where we can see the importance of, of understanding Satan's role in this world. Yes, we need to be saved from our sin. It's, it's our sin that we need to be saved from. But to be in sin is to be under the possession and the control of the evil one. Therefore, to be saved by faith in Christ is to be delivered from sin, to be delivered from death and from the grave and from hell. 
But ultimately, to be saved by Christ is to be delivered from the evil one. Hebrews 2.14 says of Christ that he, um, uh, that he has destroyed, Christ has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and has delivered us. Next, the psalmist recalls his cry of distress when he was in trouble. So the second point, recalling the cry of distress. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. So it's one thing to recall the past. It's, it's another thing to remember that faith has brought you out of that distress. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Maybe the psalmist uh, could have just said, I was in trouble and God saved me. Wouldn't that give glory to God? Wouldn't that be sufficient? But the cry of faith is important. We can even say that the cry of faith is, is essential. Unless there is the cry of faith, there is no salvation. Think of how many times we're we're taught this in, in God's word. Think of Hannah praying in, the, um, uh, praying in the temple. She was in distress, but she was also in the temple calling upon the Lord. Uh, think, of, uh, think of Peter, who stepped out of the boat uh, to walk on the water toward Jesus until he looked at the waves and called upon the Lord to save him. Think of the tax collector who came to the temple to pray in the realization and the conviction of his sin. He beat his breast and called upon the Lord, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So first, have we, has has each of us, cried out to God in in our distress? Again, it's one thing to remember a, a, a time of trouble in your life, but the point shouldn't be just to think or even to say, I remember that time, uh, I was really in a fix, but then it came to an end and everything is better now. Thanks be to God. The words, thanks be to God, are, are good, but how much better to remember even our own cry of distress and beyond the distress of some time of trouble in our life. Have we come to see the distress of our sin, the distress of being a sinner, before a holy God? And have we prayed the prayer of the repenting tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That's really why God sends us times of trouble, in order to humble us, but not just to humble us in the day of trouble, but to humble us before him for all eternity. And and God may deliver us from our daily or seasonal troubles, but But what we really need is his full deliverance from sin through Christ. Second, do we we continue to call upon the Lord? Uh, Why do it again? Well, because the trouble of our sin continues once we have come to faith in Christ. Once we have been... Uh, once we have first called upon God for his mercy in Christ, we, we continue to need the mercy of God in Christ. So why wouldn't we continue to call upon the Lord? 
confessing our sin and, and doing so with the assurance that, that He has heard our cry in the past and He will continue to be merciful toward us in our sinful present and for the future as well. And, 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 and let it be clear that, that we don't get saved and then lose our salvation and then we get saved again and, and, and ask God for His mercy again. And No, this psalmist is praying to his covenant God. The psalmist is, is praying on the basis of God's covenant promises. The psalmist says, I love you, O Lord. Remember? O Lord, my strength. And the psalmist says of God that he is my God, my rock, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. Last time we emphasized all of these words, all these designations of of who God is to the psalmist, and, and we found Christ in all of them. This time we ought to emphasize the possessive pronoun again, my God. Is this your confession I love you, O Lord, because you are my God, you are my rock, you are my shield, you are the horn of my salvation, you are my stronghold. What good is a, is a stronghold if God only cast us out and away whenever we sin? And what good is faith if, if it's not faith in God's covenant promises So let this be known, let it be understood that God's gospel promises in Christ are His covenant promises. Our faith is important, even essential, but our faith is not the thing to be trusted in. If we have faith only in our faith, we are left, as the Apostle Paul says, we are left to be tossed to and fro fro, by the waves, and carried about aimlessly on the waters of life. Instead, our faith must be in Christ. Our faith must be set upon the covenant promises and the covenant faithfulness of God. And not just God, but my God, even as we know Him in Christ as my God, my rock, my strength, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And so we finish with recalling the grace of God because that's where the psalmist goes next in verse 6. He writes, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. There's the cry of distress. But then this, From his temple he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. And this brings up uh, one of, I think, the best promises of God. Maybe, Maybe it's the very best. We hear it in Romans 10. We use it fairly often for the the assurance of pardon in the first part of the service. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. But it goes on to connect believing in your heart with calling upon the Lord. We hear this promise further. For everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is what Jesus taught when he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Someone might say, but I have prayed. I I did ask. I am seeking. I knock every day. And I haven't received. And I haven't found. And the door hasn't been opened. But I would only ask, what are you asking for? Don't ask for bus fare when what you need is deliverance from sin, death, and hell. I know that I know that doesn't sound uh, very nice of me to refer to your immediate needs as bus fare but but that's really what this life is. We 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 might want a better job. We might desire a greater income. We might have a very real need for healing and for health. But God would have us not store up for ourselves treasures on earth. He would not have us ask for too little. And God would certainly not have us make peace with death. We need the forgiveness of sin. We need deliverance from death and hell. And we need to gain the perspective of eternity on our lives. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was not in any way oblivious to human suffering. He healed many. He he cast out many demons. But he carried out his ministry in a, in a tiny little spot on the face of the earth. And he did thousands of miracles and many lives were extended and bettered by his compassion. But even those, think about this, even those he healed went on to die. It wasn't until the cross that Christ um, did his greatest work. It wasn't until the cross that Jesus did the work that abounds to eternity. It wasn't until by his cross that Jesus provided the miracle of new birth in the hearts of sinners. New birth unto repentance and faith, and repentance and faith unto forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life. So pray for finances and healing. Pray for a better job. Pray that your neighbor's dog will quit barking at 5.30 in the morning. Pray for all things and pray without ceasing. But let, but let us not fail to request the one thing that God has promised to give Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And maybe, just maybe, with eternity in view, with eternal life in our possession, maybe we will find peace despite our finances, despite our illnesses, even when your neighbor isn't very considerate. It's finally what we really need. It's it's finally what we ultimately need. It's it's the promised provision of the God who has already, through Christ, done the work to save us. 
And then, of course, back to the main point. Then, then spend your life recalling. Psalm 103 says, Forget not all his benefits. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, writes the Apostle Paul. Remember. Remember. Recall your cry of distress. And remember how from his temple the Lord heard. He heard you. He heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. The Christian faith is a religion of remembrance. Forget not all his benefits. Remember Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, said our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we love him. This is the leverage of love. That we know And recall each day what he has done for us. We will not love him if we have not been saved by him. But even as we are saved by him, our love won't last. Our love for Christ will fade unless we recall each and every day the trouble of sin, the cry of distress that we made out of our trouble and the answer that we have received the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Help us, O God, to remember we are so forgetful. Help us to remember even hard things, dumb things that we've done in the past. Always remembering as well, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of righteousness, the full and free salvation, grant that we would recall and that we would continue to cry out to you in our need with this assurance that you are our God, our rock, And that you are always faithful to us in your grace and mercy. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.